Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre. And I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 10, Episode 15. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Christopher Howard Slime Beast Wolf, about lethal labors, deadly disappearances, suspicious success, and perilous pranks. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors... Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> ah, the days of volunteer work. Spending those teenage years learning what things would be like when working out in the world, only without the joy of actually getting paid. In our first Christopher Wolf story, we have a young man remembering his time volunteering on a farm. But there's something not quite right about the place. Maybe it's the creepy old man who he's working for. 
Maybe it's the disrepair of the buildings and animals. Or maybe, maybe it's something he couldn't possibly prepare himself for. Without further ado, I present to you Waken Farm. I met the old man at a Bojangles restaurant. I was about 16 at the time and had just dropped out of high school with my parents' blessing. It wasn't the sort of place where you'd learn much of anything, aside from how to take a punch, that is. That was a period in my life where I had no actual idea what I was going to do with myself. School had been a placeholder that took up most of my time, and the sudden freedom was more scary than relieving. I knew I was supposed to be accomplishing something, but other than sketching out doodles and writing half-baked stories, I had no real plans. As usual, my mom ended up planning for me. She decided that I was going to volunteer somewhere and help others while getting some sort of experience that might lead me down the path to a career. That was how I ended up sitting across from the old man in a corner booth at Bojangles. I had ordered fries and a drink while I waited for him, and he showed up when I was about halfway through the poor excuse for lunch. Mom had dropped me off to talk with him while she ran some errands. I didn't really want to go to the farm. I had no interest in manual labor, and I secretly dreaded the idea I'd have to kill or butcher livestock. I convinced myself that one of the other volunteer opportunities, if you call him that, would pan out, and I'd never have to meet the farmer. In my defense, the charity call center was full of middle-aged, sweaty people who seemed desperate for conversation, and the nursing home outright stank. It didn't help that one of the old ladies called me Jessup and tried to grab me from her wheelchair. So yeah, nothing had worked out, and I had to wait for the old man. He started talking about a bunch of feel-good, old-timey, American stuff I can't fully recall. Stuff about hard day's work and how I'd find my reward in natural Christian living. I just nodded and kept eating. I knew I didn't have anything remotely interesting to say to this guy. When he went into how he'd served overseas and how you had to get out of the way of the cannons or they'd take your head clean off, I, well, I basically tuned him out. I didn't really stop to think about the situation I was in until I reached across the table with a gnarly old finger to draw the french fries away from me. He pulled them to the center of the table and just kept talking. He decided I should stop eating and pay attention, and that was how he decided to go about it. In my teen years, I was basically a doormat. I didn't know how to say no properly, and I had no idea how to stick up for myself. The only reason I'd gotten out of school was that I'd been choked until I blacked out and had put enough fear into my parents. I knew I didn't want to volunteer at other places, and I mentioned that, but again, instead of just saying no, I'd gone with, let's see what the next one's like. The old man, the farmer, creeped me out. I guess I should call him Farmer Waken by this point. I'm realizing now that I should have told you this name sooner, but since he didn't tell me that day, 
I kind of felt natural just referring to him as I'd thought of him then. The old man. He was the poster boy for that term. He was short, much shorter than me, even though I was still growing. Conversely, I guess he was shrinking. His limbs were real thin and he was bow-legged. An absence of teeth in his face made his mouth pucker inward, and his sunken eyes were milky white behind his thin-rimmed glasses. The outfit was straight out of a rustic painting or something. Blue overalls, red-striped shirt, blue cap, brown boots covered in what I hope was mud. At the end of his rambling spiel, I told him I'd think about the offer. He'd put an ad in the paper looking for young people to help in a farm, and in return, they'd learn any number of invaluable skills. He didn't happen to write exactly what that might be. Apparently, something was lost in translation. At least, that's what I thought at first. Within days, my mom was planning again. This time, she was plotting our trip out to Waken Farm. I was confused, completely taken by surprise, when she casually mentioned the trip. I'd honestly put Waken Farm out of my head. I hadn't given a second thought the second I left that restaurant. When I expressed this to her, Mom said she'd called several times to discuss the preparations and that he'd said I'd agreed to help out. Of course, as you and I both know, I'd done no such thing, and I told her that in no uncertain terms. I may have been a bit spineless, but I wasn't going to let some old, rude weirdo lie about me like that. But yeah, yeah, she talked me into it. She insisted that I must have misspoken, or at least he must have misheard. Now he had his heart set on me coming back to check out the farm. No one else had apparently responded to the ad. Go figure. And Farmer Waken would have nobody to help keep things running until he could hire some people on where the ad had failed. Trust me, I mentioned the fact that I wasn't happy about doing free hard labor for him. Repeatedly. The farm was, as you'd expect, far beyond the reach of modern civilization. My family already lived out in the country, so when I say this was the boondocks, I mean this was really out there. The only way we knew where to stop amidst the infinite landscape of ravaged farmland was by spotting the old wrought iron gateway arching over the correct dirty path. Sheet metal haphazardly cut into jagged letters read Waken Farm. The red paint on the name had peeled away so much over the years that it was barely noticeable as we bumped over the rocks and potholes of the path. Even then, the dust we kicked up was nearly enough to obscure it. Mom said the place was beautiful, but I knew she was just trying to make me feel better about the whole thing. It was a dust bowl. Any square patches of crops, mostly corn, were stunted, withered, and brownish. As we drove down the awkward, curving path, I could see a haphazard wire fence containing a handful of underfed cattle. I was already starting to feel that dread in the pit of my stomach again. This time, it wasn't over the idea of slaughtering cows. It was just the look of them. I couldn't, in good conscience nor the fact that they seemed to be starving. 
A large red barn, worn like the sign out front, stood at one side of the cattle pen. It was open to the elements, its doors off their hinges, and leaning against the facade. Everything seemed to be in a sorry state, and all at once I realized the worst thing of all. I was the one who was expected to fix it. We finally pulled to a stop at a crooked little house at the tree line. We'd pass some pigs, a chicken coop, a broken-down tractor, and a few other landmarks. They were all in the same state of repair. Not really worth mentioning, since you most likely get the idea by now. Farmer Wagen was sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch. I couldn't have pictured anything more cliched if I tried. I expected there to be an old hound dog at his side, but the closest thing to it was a ratty old barn cat that ignored us and focused on a proud rooster nearby. He got up slowly, probably painfully, and welcomed my mother and me inside. On the way up the stairs, I could hear the crunching of bug-eaten wood. The unsteadiness of the surface put me out balanced and I fell palms first onto an unforgiving bed of splinters. A few got under my skin, but only one, a thick one, managed to draw blood. I howled for a moment before pulling the wedge from my hand and pressing the wound tight. I think Farmer Waken made a comment about me being clumsy, but it's difficult to say due to the shock of sudden pain out of nowhere. Mom used some gauze and hydrogen peroxide in the wound, while the farmer watched from his kitchen table and sipped a cup of something that sounded thick and disgusting. I was embarrassed by the ordeal and apologized to both adults for my stupidity. Mom assured me it was all right. The farmer didn't croak out a word. For the next hour or so, I followed the slow-moving old man around the property, Mom went back to the car while I spent some quality time uh, with him. He showed off all the decrepit junk and half-dead animals with a casual sort of demeanor that almost convinced me the state of things was completely normal. I just wanted to get the tour over with so I could go home. When I was led into the house once again, through the back door, up the creaking steps and down a hallway to a small bedroom, I wasn't sure exactly what Farmer Wicken had wanted to show me. What he said next made me feel numb and cold. It was my room. As astounding as it may be, the topic had never come up in any conversation my mom and I had. The time spent volunteering on the farm was a live-in position. I immediately knew Farmer Wicken had lied again. He told her we had already discussed it at the restaurant when I had no idea whatsoever. She'd already left, dropping a suitcase off in front of the house. This was the point where I'd had enough and started to speak up for myself. It took way too long and way too much to get to that point, but the time had finally come. I loudly refused the offer and called Farmer Waken a liar directly to his face. His reaction was no reaction at all. He didn't so much as twitch an eyelid. I walked past him, out of the room, and down the hall. I'd seen the old man's phone down in the kitchen, 
and made a beeline for it. Of course, I had to leave a message on our answering machine. There was no way Mom had gotten home yet. I told her the basics, that I had never agreed to any of this, and that I wanted her to come back and pick me up. I was on the verge of tears when I hung up the phone to wait for her to either call back or show up at the door, and when I turned back to leave the kitchen, lip quivering like I was a toddler, I ran face first into someone unexpected. Tessie. I didn't know her name at that point, of course, but there you go. She was short, lean, and well-developed by anyone's standards. Her hair was blindingly orange, and unkempt only in a very purposeful sort of way. At once, I was embarrassed all over again, crying, or nearly crying, in front of a really attractive girl around my age. Part of me wanted to shove her out of the way and barrel out of the house. Tessie asked if I was all right, to which I remarked something awkward, and overcompensating, like, of course I am, or what are you talking about? I know what you're thinking, and no, she did not make me change my mind about staying on the farm. It didn't matter how thin her yellow dress was or how far down it I could see if I actually had the audacity to tilt my head forward. That wasn't enough to make me spend a single night in the garage heap they called home. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. No, what made me stay there was the angry phone call from Mom. The second she heard the message, she called the farm and scolded me for not only trying to get out of my agreement, but for trying to make her drive all the way back right out there after she got home. I could still hear my own simpering voice in the background. She hadn't even listened to the whole thing before grabbing the phone. I wanted to know why she hadn't even let me pack my own suitcase for the stay, if she thought I knew about the deal, and she pointed out that I never packed. She noted that she always packed for me because otherwise I wouldn't do it until the last second. She was right, and that didn't make me feel any less awful. With that, I was stranded in Cornhole County with complete strangers. As it turned out, I was going to be there for three weeks. I'd never paid attention to the time frame because I thought I'd be making trips out every few days. And, of course, I never intended to actually do it anyway. That first night in the house, I didn't sleep at all. I mean, if I did, then I couldn't tell. It's possible that sleep caught up with me for a few moments between glances at the bedroom door. 
I had an irrational fear that Farmer Waken was going to come into the room in the middle of the night and either forget who I was and shoot me, or do some weird stuff that I didn't even want to think about. When the door creaked open just before sunrise, I nearly screamed. Tessie poked her head in, and for a moment, we just stared at each other. I was both terrified by a stranger intruding on me, and relieved it wasn't the old man all at once. After that breathless moment passed, she said she was glad I was there, and left just as suddenly as she appeared. The next few days were brutal. It was very obvious to me that Farmer Waken was putting the work of three or four kids on my shoulders alone. I put things together in a piss-poor manner. I did crummy paint jobs. I wrapped barbed wire until the random cuts got me frustrated. It didn't take me long to figure out. I only had to work on the things Farmer Waken would be able to see. I didn't care if everything fell apart on him. As long as the facade gave the impression I'd completed a job, that was good enough. I didn't earn any of my respect or compassion by behaving so awfully in the lead-up to my stay. Tessie, his granddaughter, I assumed, was never there to help with really tough stuff. I'd catch sight of her once in a while, sewing something up or cooking for us. But the only time we crossed paths during the workday had been when she came up behind me with a sparse basket of fresh eggs and smashed one down the back of my neck before bolting away in a fit of laughter. Also, though it wasn't actual interaction, of course, there was a point where I was working up in the barn and I could see her hosing herself off by the house. I guess that was our closest moment, though she had no idea. While I had grown to hate the old taskmaster, who was now effectively keeping me prisoner, the only thing that frustrated me more than Tessie was their cat. The frazzled, angry little thing that refused to get off the bed when I wanted to collapse from exhaustion and clawed the hell out of my hand the one time I tried to pet it. That was the only thing on the farm I actually wanted to kill, though it was only in fits of impotent anger at the end of a long day. It got to the point where I was so sleep-deprived, sunburned, and overworked that I began to think I was hallucinating. The problem began when I walked back into the house about a week and a half into my stay. The boards didn't crunch under my feet like I'd gotten used to, and I realized I couldn't remember the last time they did. When I studied the area, it looked like I'd replaced the wood and hadn't even realized it. It was like I blacked out and built a porch, something I didn't tend to do. When Farmer Waken got it into his head that he was going to check my work on the barbed wire, supposedly because he heard coyotes that might jump it, I was once again startled to see I'd apparently finished the job when I wasn't looking. Even the crappy effort I'd put in seemed to be correct by an expert. I swear, even the cows looked healthier. I noticed more and more of this as days passed by, slowly. For another example, the tractor I'd fruitlessly toiled away on with no idea what I was doing looked almost shiny and new. It was as if I'd gone out and stolen one to replace the rusted heap that slid my forearm and likely gave me tetanus when I reached in too far. 
Things were generally getting better, and it was disquieting. Even the cat was groomed and filled out as if it suddenly realized it was supposed to lick its fur and eat cat food instead of fighting with chickens and losing. It dawned on me that Tessie, and even Farmer Waken himself, might have been going around and cleaning up after me. One or both of them could have been redoing all my work the proper way. But when? The old man only left the house to feed livestock and do the least taxing chores. And though Tessie woke up before me and went to bed after I did, she was small-framed and slight, despite any rambunctious spirit in her. Plus, I would have heard either of them working during the night. Even after I stopped worrying as much about night visitors, I remained a light sleeper due to being on edge. I would have noticed hammering, especially on the porch, right below my room. I couldn't square it up in my head, so I decided either I was forgetting things due to exhaustion, or there was some sort of trick being pulled on me. Knowing what a coot Farmer Waken was, I would never have put it past him to have someone doing all of this just to teach me some outdated foolish lesson or something. For all I knew, he posted Tessie at my door while he had the quietest group of migrant workers fixing things up in the brief moments I passed out completely. In what were to be my last few days on the farm, I got up the nerve to actually have a conversation with a girl I had now been full-on fantasizing about. She was sitting by a small pond just a short walk beyond the trees. Somewhere I had followed her to once before, though again I was pretty sure she hadn't noticed. For whatever reason, she went there to cry. She was surprised when I called her from the undergrowth, her orange mane splying out as her head turned suddenly. Her gasp turned to a smile within moments, however, as she told me she'd been waiting for me to get up the guts and sit with her. So, I assumed that she had actually noticed. I couldn't get straight to the point of things. I knew I was going to ask her about the phantom repairs, but not just right off the bat like that. I had to work to it since we'd essentially never had a real conversation until right then. We talked about the farm. Tessie's favorite music, and even Farmer Waken, and how much she wanted to get away from his dictatorial behavior and away from the house. Apparently, I was far from the first young man that had been brought out for free labor. The peak amount was five boys at once, but as time went on, fewer and fewer teens were willing to be suckered in. In fact, there'd only been one young man as of late, and he'd left a full two months before I had arrived. The way Tessie talked about him, I could tell that he hadn't been nearly as shy with her as I was. Even though she didn't say anything at all about liking him, I could see exactly how it had been. I was about to approach the subject of repairs I hadn't done, knowing full well I was about to sound like a lunatic, an idiot, or both, when Tessie said something I didn't expect. She called me cute. I wasn't someone who considered myself anything of the sort, not by any means. I'd just drawn in a breath to begin debating the issue with her when Tessie took my hand and placed it on her knee. To be completely honest, 
I wasn't the most experienced teenager, so while I had a general idea of what to expect, I had little to no idea what I was supposed to be doing. One sudden interruption followed the other as rustling came from the woods toward the house. Farmer Wakem, of course. He called out for me, then Tessie, and asked why no one was working on the barn or sewing his black socks. Tessie threw my hand off like it was a tarantula and whispered for me to get the hell out of there. She sounded angry, as if I'd been the problem to begin with. I got up and moved into some reeds by the lake and then pushed further into the trees. The last thing I saw before I worked my way back around to the house was Farmer Waken hobbling up to Tessie as she stood to her feet. She cast a quick look in my direction, but didn't seem to see where I'd gone. For all she knew, I'd run off like a frightened rabbit. Farmer Waken spent a few moments scolding her while she shook her head and pouted at him. I couldn't hear their words, but the tone and body language were clear. Then, they kissed. Not like grandfather and granddaughter should. Not even remotely like it. When I did circle back to the house, I was immediately on the phone again. Now I'd called home multiple times over the three weeks I'd been there. But I'd never tried to argue with my mother about the situation again. I knew better than that. However, this time, I explained everything to the answering machine in detail. Something weird was going on. Farmer Waken and his daughter were beyond friendly with each other, and if she didn't come get me, I was going to start walking home, even if I dropped dead on the way. I didn't care if I was being obnoxious or threatening at that point. As far as I was concerned, she deserved it for pawning me off and these freaks just so she could have me out of the house for a while. I should have expected it by this point. Just like the last time I made a frantic call to Mommy, I turned around to see an all-too-familiar orange mop standing in the kitchen doorway. I wasn't sure if Tessie had heard the whole thing, but even so, she had to suspect exactly what I was doing. Luckily, Farmer Waken would take a bit longer to make his way back from the pond. At first, Tessie asked how my mom was doing. It was in the sort of sing-song way you talk to someone when you're trying too hard to sound like you aren't mad. I'd heard that before. I explained that I was just calling home, like usual, and I'm sure I sounded like I was trying too hard as well. Tessie brushed past me. She was utterly cold to me now. She walked to the counter and started chopping carrots with a kitchen knife that was entirely too large and unsuitable for the task. I heard footsteps as Farmer Waken walked into the house, but instead of coming to the kitchen, I heard him stop out by the front door. Everything was eerily silent for minutes on end as I stood in the kitchen doorway. When I would look back at Tessie, she was still chopping away, paying no attention to me at all. In my gut, deep, deep inside me, I knew that things were about to go very, very wrong. It was the same feeling I'd get between the claps of thunder during a really bad storm. The next chew was going to drop, and it was unavoidable. I looked down at my hands. I don't know why. I studied the scratches, the cuts, all the battle wounds I'd collected during my stay on the farm. 
I looked them over in that moment, and suddenly, a single thought came crystal clear in my mind. Everything that had miraculously repaired itself, from the porch to the tractor and even the cat, they'd all cut me open. I was there to fix things up, but not in the way I'd expected. I was there to plead. I was feeding Waken Farm. Farmer Waken called from the other room, even though it was only one word. It still carried enough weight to crush the air out of my lungs the second I heard it. Well? I spun in place, nearly tripped over my shoes, as Tessie herself whirled around and leaped at me, knife drawn above her head. The instant her grandfather spoke, presumably to ask her if she'd done what came next, she let out an ear-splitting shriek that I couldn't define as a sound of rage or pain. We rolled to the floor, and Tessie thrust the knife down at me. I wasn't able to block her or grab her arms or anything of the sort. All I could do was pull her down with me and hope she missed. At first, she was insane, maddened by the impossible mix of determination and uncertainty. All at once, she was on top of me, straddling my stomach, and I lay sprawled out and helpless, knife dangling over my heart in small, shaking hands. Thinking quickly, or not thinking at all, my hands moved to her, not with force or hatred, though it was all I could do to contain the natural urge to fight. I knew that one wrong move would put a metal wedge somewhere close to my heart. Staring her dead in the eyes, no doubt displaying every ounce of fear in my soul, I felt for her legs, her thighs, and waist. I held her like I imagined a man would if I had been anything close to one before that moment. I could taste her tears. She softened. Her hands wavered. I sat up incredibly slowly, never breaking from her eyes that were now nearly as red as her hair. She still had the knife in her hands, but now it seemed to have nowhere to go. When I heard the old man's footsteps much closer now, I moved quickly once more, all but forgetting Tessie. I rolled to avoid whatever Farmer Waken was about to do now, that his granddaughter had faltered. A gunshot echoed through the house, creating a deafening echo in the small kitchen. I'd moved just in time to save my life, just in time to doom her. Farmer Waken turned pale, whiter still than he'd already been as he stood in the kitchen doorway. He dropped the smoking hunting rifle through the worn carpet and stared at Tessie as she laid bleeding out. She was still silent, almost a perfect doll, if not for the gushing red patch that had been in her delicate throat. The old man screamed. He dropped to his knees with a crack, and I'm positive he broke bones in the process. He gathered Tessie up in his arms and howled like a wounded beast through gasps and wheezes. I got to my feet and backed out of the kitchen. I was shocked beyond measure, to the point I didn't even think to pick up or move the gun. Farmer Waken rocked Tessie in his arms and begged her not to go. Not after all this time. Not after more than fifty years. I watched as Tessie's blood pooled on the kitchen floor, 
moving between the tiles and spreading quickly from wall to wall. I watched the cabinets pop and creak as their doors straightened, their hinges tightened, and they took on a new shine. The electric hum of the refrigerator became quieter and quieter as its paint brightened and its handles grew out small fractals of new chrome. The wallpaper came to life with vibrant color, and the ceiling lamp shone brighter than I could stand to look at. Fifty years? Waken Farm, a vampiric plot of land in the middle of nowhere. A strange, ghoulish blight on an otherwise unremarkable countryside. Waken Farm, a place young men go to shed blood, sweat, and tears. Fifty years. Tessie wasn't Farmer Waken's granddaughter. She was his wife. I ran from Waken Farm. It might be typical to say I never looked back, but I looked back constantly. I checked to see if the old man was following me at every opportunity, even after I reached the end of the dirt path and knew there was no way his crippled legs could bring him that far. I wasn't going to assume anything by that point. Every time I looked back over my shoulder, the house was newer. The first thing we did when Mom arrived at the Iron Gate was to call the cops at the nearest mom-and-pop gas station. Luckily, she believed me about the supposed incest, and now about the attempted murder followed by the actual accidental murder. Some state troopers came out, and we actually had to show them where Waken Farm was. They'd never heard of it, despite working in the area. The troopers left us at the end of that dusty dirt path as they radioed for emergency services and took off toward the house, toward the plume of smoke. The house burned to the ground, and all of us knew Farmer Waken had done it. They found Tessie's remains in the house later on. We had to find out from the local TV news, rather than the authorities themselves. The old man had apparently dragged himself outside after starting the fire and drowned himself in the pond out back. I looked into Waken Farm, even though Mom insisted I shouldn't, under the premise of studying for school, I was able to look up some newspaper articles that seemed loosely related to the place. There wasn't very much, and the information that did exist was mostly innocuous. However, I did find one thing that made it all click for me. I found something about the boy that had been staying at the farm before me, the one Tessie seemed to speak fondly of. It was an obituary. I still think Tessie loved him. I imagine she was an old woman then, tied to an unromantic and cruel husband who stranded them on a hellish farmland that disturbed her. She probably would have never acted on it, but I bet the boy reminded her of a time when she was happy. Some part of me wants to think that she warned him. She didn't want him hurt. She didn't want him paying a price of pain for their upkeep. I think Farmer Waken found out and killed him. Made it seem like an accident. After all, the cause of death was a fall from a, the very barn I had been working on. I think Tessie found him, held his body, didn't care that his blood was all over her. I think that boy gave her back her youth, and by then she didn't want it. Hell, maybe it really was an accident. There's no way to know for sure, 
and maybe my own disdain toward the old man was clouding my judgment. I don't know if Tessie tried to kill me because they were desperate to cover up what I discovered, or if my death had been planned all along. Did Tessie's change show Farmer Waken that a big enough sacrifice could do the same thing for him? Had it taken two months for him to bully, threaten, or even abuse her until she broke down and agreed to kill? When the police were done with the scene and everything was about to be auctioned off, there was a final bit of gossip to come out of Wigan Farm. Someone, or something, had left nothing but debris in place of the structures. The crops had turned to dust. The animals were reduced to bone. No one here wants to talk about it, and now that I've spilled my guts like this, neither do I. I hope you enjoyed Waken Farm by Christopher Slime Beast Wolf, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help him by supporting him and visiting at simplyscarypodcast.com slash slimebeast. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash S-L-I-M-E B-E-A-S-T There you can find ways to his writing as well as his various video projects and other numerous offerings. Books, videos, Reddit hostings, narrations, you name it, he has ways of making your sleep less than comfortable. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Chris a kind word and let him know you heard about him on this show. And Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. It's sort of a shame. In the right hands, that kind of farm wouldn't be a curse but a blessing. Just imagine, with just a handful of pigs and a few rejuvenations, you could have bacon for years from the same animals. No chance they would ever get tired of letting you have it either. Sometimes, though, there are those in a small town who aren't hermits, but are genuinely well-known and beloved figures of great repute. What happens, then, when one of those people goes missing with no sign of what happened? Well, when a ragtag search party takes it upon themselves to go looking, as one does in our second Chris Wolf story, maybe it would have been best if they had just left well enough alone. Without further ado, I present to you Local Legend. Leonard Sky was a bit of a local celebrity in the absurdly small town where I grew up. Hunter, survivalist, general man's man. Leonard was both respected and feared. You would never catch him wearing anything other than jeans a t-shirt and flannel. The silver ring that hung on a string around his neck drove everyone crazy with gossip. Had he been secretly married in another town over? Did it belong to his sainted mother, who died in childbirth? Some more whimsical residents suspected he had a vision somewhere in the deep forest, 
and the jewelry was for his future soulmate. The area spinsters were crazy about him, behaving like a human conveyor belt of baked goods delivered routinely to his door. Pies, cakes, even the occasional loaf of banana bread from old Lady Guthrie. Some were clearly too old for him. Others were awkwardly young. At the end of the day, none of them seemed to be a good fit, and he remained a bachelor. When the local Cub Scout troop wanted to spend a night in the woods and do some real camping, Leonard was the first guy to call. But then mothers swooned as he ordered the kids into some wooded property, keeping them in a regimented and obedient line. Some of the kids were horrified when he killed a rabbit and served it to them over a campfire that night, but most thought it was awesome. So, as you can imagine, losing a local hero like Leonard came as a big shock to the community. One day he went out bear hunting. The next, he didn't return. Day two, day three, and four. No sign of Leonard Sky. His home remained locked, hunting magazines piled up in his mailbox. I was there where they held Leonard's funeral. His body was never found. The grizzled old man insisted the bears had eaten him whole. The teary-eyed girls insisted it couldn't be true. Still, we buried an empty coffin in a county-owned park beneath the tree, almost as huge and hardy as the man's legacy. Leonard's absence was felt in almost every aspect of small-town life. Froggy's general store kept stocking his favorite beer for months after he was gone, even though no one else could stomach it. The Riverview Diner had a reserved table for him, and the last ketchup bottle to use stood there, untouched and half-full for a year or more. If I recall correctly, a trucker who was passing through sat himself down when the diner was busy and desecrated the monument for his cheeseburger and onion rings. No one was more affected by the disappearance than my boss, Waylon Faircloth. He owned a gun shop smack dab in the heart of town, and I'd taken a job there with the hope of using his gun range to try out every weapon I could get my hands on. As it turned out, however... Waylon was incredibly strict, and I ended up doing nothing but cleaning, stocking, and handling customers when the boss was otherwise engaged. I focused my discontent by wondering which would take over first, his broom of a mustache or his embarrassing amount of ear hair. Waylon had been a star football player in high school. They called him Waylon Waylon and would egg him on whenever he physically accosted rival mascots on the field. When I met him, though, he was an older man with a pronounced limp and a cane that unscrewed to reveal a wicked skinning knife. He inherited the gun shop from his father, who'd gotten it from his father, and so on. I think that even if he hadn't been injured during a game, Wellen would still not have been able to escape that town and his heritage. The back office of the gun shop was like a shrine to Leonard Sky. Newspaper clippings, photos of the forest where he disappeared, articles about strange animal sightings in the area. 
It was a wall of crazy, and I was honestly surprised there were no thumbtacks or strings connecting the straps together in a conspiracy chart. Whoa, is this about Mr. Sky? I stupidly asked when I first saw the wall. Hmm? Whalen looked up from his shabby, bug-eaten wooden desk. Oh, yep. Tell me, kid, a man like that, best hunter I ever saw, lived and breathed wilderness. How the hell does someone like that let a brown bear get the best of him? Don't make sense. I nodded, half agreeing with him, half concerned with upsetting an elder, and half worried I might get fired if I didn't believe him. Doesn't make sense, I repeated. It was Lee that suggested looking for Leonard's remains. Lee was a beast of a girl, six foot plus, strong as an ox. Many years after Waylon Waylon was the talk of the school, Lee rose to fame as an aggressive and unforgiving volleyball champion. She too had a fall from grace that prevented her from pursuing a career in sports, but her handicap was a blonde cheerleader named Maribel and the bitchy classmates who spread a compromising photo of them in the locker room after a game. Mr. Faircloth is like Leonard Skye's number one fan, Ed mentioned. Lee and I were watching college football over a pizza. Two twenty-somethings with our ankles caught in the bear trap of a small-town purgatory. Did they ever organize a search party or what? She asked. I don't know. I folded a slice of pizza and stuffed my face. Cops around here are lazy as shit, Lee mused. Remember a while back when that lady got killed up the highway? Family came by to leave a wreath on the spot, and they found her purse in a sticker bush. Police ain't even looking for shit. Drunk and partially stoned, the two of us hatched a plan. The next day, we approached Whalen and floated the idea of going out to where Leonard disappeared and seeing what we could find. It had been so long at that point that we could realistically expect to find bones or tattered cloth at most. Maybe we could spot the ring if we had eagle eyes and the sunlight caught it just right. To say Wayland was a fan of the idea would be an understatement. He already had maps prepared, an almost gleeful glint shone in his otherwise cloudy eyes as he started pulling out guns and provisions. Lee and I exchanged a smirk. Waylon had been quietly living for this moment, and no one even thought to ask. Our silly little hunting party would have been fine with three people. When the bell above the front door of the shop rang, we were all prepared to ignore the customer just to get out there. Still, Waylon's better judgment took over, and he gestured for me to go see who was there. Colt, the loon who claimed to be part Native American, part Mexican, and more depending on who he happened to be talking to at the time. His family history was too much of a crisscrossing mess to make heads or tails of his claims. He came into the shop now and then, mostly to browse, and start arguments about politics, never to buy anything. Sorry, Colt, we're about to go do some stuff, I said, 
poking my head out the office door. Colt! Waylon shouted suddenly. He pushed past me and waved for the wiry, underfed non-customer to join us. You're a native. We could use a tracker. I gritted my teeth and felt my eyebrows raise in response to Waylon's blunt statement. Colt, however, just seemed happy to be included and quickly asked what we were up to. I guess he really just wanted to fit in with people. For the next hour or so, Waylon drew up plans, issued orders, and then took them all back when problems became apparent. By the fifth or sixth draft, we had a solid course of action. Wayland would administrate, naturally, since he was, as he put it, crippled up like an old dog. I'd be his arms and legs. I'd carry provisions and gear. Lee was more than capable of clearing brush, and removing hazards. If we came across a rabid raccoon, she'd take a rock to its head in an instant. Colt would be there to read the land, supposedly, but I had the feeling he'd mostly concern himself with getting worked up about the government and who really pulls the strings. The spot where Leonard Sky entered the tree line was no secret. There'd been a meeting about closing the path off to the public due to the danger but in the end, it felt disrespectful to someone who encouraged everyone to try camping out at least once in their life. We left in the early morning hours. Surprisingly, no one was late. I showed up last, even though I made sure to arrive ten minutes before the agreed time. Everyone had a different idea of search and rescue attire. Waylon was wrapped up in layers with a fur-lined coat. Lee had already tied her shirt around her tree trunk waist. Her black sports bra required for nothing other than modesty. Colt was wearing a fringed leather jacket and a ludicrous hat with a pheasant feather. It wasn't exactly legal for us to be carrying Wayland's guns, but Lee was right. The police were nothing to be afraid of, unless you were an out-of-towner who might pay their way out of a citation. We trudged through the harsh overgrowth. Our spirits started high. We were excited to become part of the legend, even if none of us realized it at the time. Those spirits slowly dimmed, however, with every cut and bruise that marked our bodies. The thickening tree canopy and gloom of archaic forest also did well to bring a sense, a growing sense of doom. As things came into focus, we each separately realized we were treading on the ground where a very real man had met a very real death. It was late afternoon when we came to a clearing. We'd circled and weaved through the area carefully, following Wayland's plans to the very detail. If there had been anything to find, we would have discovered it. No question. What if he ran away from it all? Lee mused as we reached the center of the clearing. I dropped my backpack and rubbed my aching shoulders. Colt sat down on a log and brushed the angry termites from his lap rather than get on his tired feet again. That sounds possible. I cleared a gnat out of my throat with a cough. Small town, everyone knows each other. Someone like him, so important to everyone, 
It'd be easier to just disappear one night than say goodbye. No one would let him go. Wayland, refusing to rest, thrust the point of his cane into the log, breaking away rotted splinters and causing Colt to jump. He would never leave like that, Wayland insisted. Never. He loved this place, and this place loved him. Sneaking away in the night? That's a coward's way. I'll thank you not to speak ill of the dead. Kidnapping, Colt added. I guarantee you he knew too much. Saw something he shouldn't have. Look at this clearing. Could set a black helicopter down here easy. Zip, zip, you're in. And out before anyone knows you're here. I rolled my eyes and bent down to pick up my pack. Crack! A gunshot. I felt a sudden chilling breeze of a bullet as it moved past my head. If I hadn't ducked at that exact moment for the sole reason of getting my pack, I would have been killed instantly. Oh, crap, Lee shouted. Dumb son of a bitch. Whalen growled, waving his hand and hobbling in a circle as if trying to signal whoever had shot from the tree line. Do we look like a herd of deer? Crack! Everyone jumped in shock as the second gunshot rang out. Instantly, we knew it wasn't a mistake anymore. Someone had tried to kill me. Cole doubled over slowly, slumping forward, and dropping from the log with a sprawling thud. Blood instantly started pulling around his head. A sickening spurt of crimson gushed from a fresh hole in the back of his partially exposed skull. Jesus Christ! Whalen screamed in horror. He was stupefied, staring at Colt's body as it violently twitched on the grass. Lee and I flanked him, each grabbing an arm as we carried him off his feet and ushered him to the ground behind the log. Stay down, Lee snapped. It's not a hunter. It's not a hunter. Colt was right, I whispered, a cold chill tingling up my back and raising the hair in my scalp. It's the goddamn government. Wayland shook his head and blinked a few times. Neither he was coming out of shock, or he was in a sort of shock that dulled his sense of fear. We're in a bad spot, he stammered. Laid out behind rotted firewood. He's already creeping up on us, I guarantee it. Soon as he has a good angle, we're dead. But what'd we do? I croaked, dread quickly closing my throat. Lee lifted her shotgun and checked it to see if it was still loaded, as if that would have changed at some point. Taking her cue, Waylon dug the fancy yet mostly useless revolver from his thick jacket. With shaking hands, I lifted my hunting rifle and cocked it, ejecting a perfectly good bullet out of the chamber. Waylon gave me a side-eye glance, but didn't call me on the thoughtless mistake. Prepared to face our would-be killer, but still filled with the fear of our own mortality, we each waited for someone else to make the first move. There was no plan. Not anymore. I didn't know if we were going to fire at the mystery man, or if we'd make a run for it. I didn't know in which direction we were supposed to run. Now, Lee shouted, sliding herself out from beside the log, and firing two rapid shots into something I couldn't see. 
Whalen fumbled a bit, pulling himself up over the log, following suit with six wild pulls of the trigger. Once again, I was the last one. I peeked carefully over the log, focusing my vision down the scope of my rifle. Of Whalen's rifle, technically speaking. I saw what they shot at. Through the scope lens, I saw the dark human-like form standing in the clearing about thirty feet away. It was tall, thin, draped in the fetid pelts of random animals. The rot-flecked skull of a buck, an eight-pointed trophy, to be sure, sat over his head like a twisted helmet. In its hands, a rusted, weather-worn rifle with mangy tails tied around the barrel. The thing fired again, taking out a chunk of the log as Lee rolled away and into the open. I centered my shot and pulled the trigger, sending a bullet directly through the left eye socket of the skull with a spray of black mist. Don't get me wrong, it was a <laughs> very lucky shot. The creature reeled back from the impact, but didn't seem to be in pain. I studied it in awe, surveying its awkward, gnarly body through the scope. Then I saw the ring. A silver ring, suspended by string, worn around the beast's neck. Guys! I swallowed hard. It's him! It's him! The ring! Waylon instantly yanked the rifle away from me and balanced it on the log, pressing his own eye to the lens. I watched, confused, as a tear beaded up in the wrinkles at the corner of his eye and slowly rolled down his spotted cheek. Within seconds, Waylon was crying. Loud, halting sounds of choked sadness rose from his chest and escaped from between his gritted teeth. What are you doing? Lee asked as Whalen dropped the rifle and stood, as best he could, in full view of the monster. Get down, I insisted, tugging at his pant leg, only to be weakly kicked away. Whalen sat over the log, pushing himself to the other side, then wobbled toward the creature, leaning on his unsteady cane that was digging into the soil. Lee and I could only watch as the creature once again leveled its weapon, his time taking aim at the old man's face. Wayland reached into his coat, pulling something from behind his collar. I caught a glimpse of the object Wayland held as the light danced across it. A ring. A second silver ring on a necklace. The creature stood stock still. It didn't move an inch. It didn't lower its gun. Lenny! Wayland called out, the voice racked with grief. My God, Lenny, what happened to you? The monster, Leonard Sky, dropped its long, lean arms to its side as Waylon came close and threw his arms around it. I couldn't hear properly at that distance, but I really think Waylon apologized for not looking for him sooner. I think, looking back on it, that he was always afraid of what he'd find, though no one would have expected this. Creature raised a hand to the old man's head, and a slow, thoughtful motion stroked his hair. Lee and I jumped as Waylon pulled the skinning knife from his cane. He thrust it into the creature's gut and pulled upward, spilling its dead insides on the ground. There was a piercing cry of pain, but it came from Waylon, 
The creature threw Whalen aside with tremendous strength, sending him flying into a cluster of half-buried stones with a crack. It stepped forward, raising its gun again, only to collapse under its own weight, its soiled feet tied up in its own entrails. In moments, the thing was motionless, dead. As Lee and I gathered the courage to approach, guns at the ready, we discovered nothing more than a pile of exposed meat and bone. I hate funerals. Leonard Skye's ceremony seemed like ages ago, the distant past. In retrospect, it was easier to bury a coffin with no one in it. Whalen and Colt were a different story. We had to tell everyone they got into a physical fight over Colt's conspiracy theories. Whalen shot him in the chaos. The recoil from the gunshot toppled Whalen, who was always so unsure on his feet, causing him to smack his head on a rock. That was the best two scared dumbasses could think of on the way back to town. It really felt bad, lying to their families, tarnishing the reputations of dead men. But then again, reputations didn't do much for Leonard Skye in the end. The man everyone loved, the man who loved someone he could never admit to. At least someone knows the truth. The legend will live forever, but the man is finally at rest. I hope you enjoyed Local Legend by Chris Wolf, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash slimebeast. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash S-L-I-M-E B-E-A-S-T. There, he'll encourage you to check out his website, www.slimebeast.com, for stories, books, videos, and more than enough content to keep you awake and busy long after the sun starts to come up. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, Please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program, and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure Chris would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show, and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go... I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscurrypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes 
for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012. All of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. 
Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.